Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of Medical Product Outsourcing, and I'm here once again with Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences, for another episode of Mike on MedTech. Mike, how are you doing today? Good, thank you, Sean. Uh, so, uh, as we've typically done in, in uh, with quite a few of these podcasts, we're going to uh, be speaking on the topic I used for my editor's letter, and this time it was the JanFeb uh, issue of MPO, uh, and the topic at hand was, was uh, for the most part, the 510K modernization. Um, I kind of deviate a little bit from that in the, in the editor's letter, but for the most part, that's the the topic that is being discussed. Uh, so I thought, you know, it would be a great topic to, to bring to Mike and, and get his perspectives and insights on it. Uh, so Mike, if you don't mind, we'll jump right into it. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to uh, uh, first get an idea about the 510K modernization. As you know, late last year it was announced uh, from the FDA that they were going to put forth this effort to modernize the 510K clearance pathway. Uh, predicate devices were a focal point in the announcement. Is there a reason for the agency to seek to cut off the predicate device at, say, an arbitrary number 10 years? Or is that, as I said, just an arbitrary number they selected? Um, is there any purpose or, or meaning behind having 10 years as a, as a cutoff? Well, it's a great question, Sean, and thanks again for the opportunity to have this discussion because I, because I think it's a very important and a very timely discussion. And just a quick comment before I answer your specific question. You mentioned 510K modernization several times. I want to just remind you as well as our audience that the 510K was originally created in 1976. And it really has not changed in any significant way since then. Should it be changed? Well, I suppose that's the, the topic of today's conversation. So putting things in perspective, um, when it comes to the so-called five, ten, uh, sorry, so-called ten-year predicate rule or ten-year predi uh, predicate limitation, just want to also remind you in the audience of a statistic right out of the FDA, and that is only about 20% of predicates that are used today in the 510K world are in fact greater than uh, 10 years old. That means that 80% of predicates are less than 10 years old, and even if this rule were to go into effect, it would only affect at most 20% of the 510Ks. So we're talking about a relatively small, certainly not insignificant, but relatively small slice of the pie. Specifically, right. when it comes to that 10-year number, um, I'll be honest with you, Sean, um, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of public comment, uh, both from the agency as well as the, the, the industry, about uh, the 10-year uh, limitation. But I've seen no justification whatsoever for choosing that particular number as opposed to some other number, five years or 15 years or what have you. Um, right. And as a professional biomedical engineer, I can't think of any reason why to choose 10 years. So the simplest explanation I have to your question of where does this 10-year number come from, it's a simple number. It's a round number. It's a number that people have plucked out of the sky. The most important question is, if we implement it, will it really solve the problem? As, uh, as we can discuss, Sean, I don't think so. Okay, and that well, that's that's a perfect lead-in to to my next question, which is, uh, if we were to have this arbitrary cutoff 
of, of predicate devices, whether it be 5, 10, you know, 15 years, are we doing a disservice to, you know, all the stakeholders involved, the manufacturer, the patient, uh, what have you? And then in addition to that, do older predicate devices still offer advantages to the regulatory approval process? Well, once again, Sean, it's a, it's a terrific question. Um, in short, there's advantages and disadvantages to everything. But in my professional opinion, both as a regulatory consultant as well as a biomedical engineer, uh, there, um, uh, the, the simple answer is yes. Um, older predicates do offer a lot of advantages. I will talk more about that in a second. But again, I just want to remind you and the audience that since the 510K was created in 1976, about 43 years ago, the regulation has always said we need a predicate. However, the regulation has never said how uh, old or how new that predicate should be. And in my not-so-humble opinion, Sean, that decision should not be up to the regulation. That decision should be up to us. In other words, as a responsible regulatory consultant and biomedical engineer, I want to be able to use my professional judgment to be able to choose what I think is the most appropriate predicate, regardless of if it's one month old, one year old, uh, a decade old, or 40 years old. I don't want to be micromanaged by regulation precluding me from using an older device just because it's older than a certain number. But on the, uh, you know, along with that freedom of choice, so to speak, comes the responsibility uh, for our actions. In other words, if, there, if I do choose a predicate, I should be able to defend it to the FDA in terms of why I'm choosing it. Again, whether it's one year old or 10 years old, it doesn't really matter. We should be responsible for our actions. And we should also be responsible for our inactions as well. Um, and uh, so back to your, the other part of your question, Sean, in terms of can we assume that um, uh, a, a new device is better than an older device? The short answer is absolutely not. Just because a device is older than 10 years doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad device. And as a matter of fact, there are tremendous potential advantages to using older predicates because they come with an awful lot of history, an awful lot of real-world use, real-world real data, real-world evidence, whatever you want to call it, that a new device does not have. So for a whole bunch of reasons, Sean, I think this is a, an important topic. It's a good thing that people are talking about. But I just think that imposing an arbitrary limit of 10 years is an overly simplistic solution to a much more complicated problem. Okay, fair enough. And uh, so my next question ties into to some of the discussions we've had in, in recent uh, podcasts, I think specifically the last two. Uh, but basically, in, in 2018, it was not, you know, from a PR standpoint, it was not a great year for the medical device industry. We saw the results from an international consortium of investigative journalists came out, and also there was the documentary that is uh, available on Netflix called The Bleeding Edge. Um, both of these were not very complimentary of the industry, uh, you know, from manufacturers through to the FDA. In your opinion, is this you know, a bit of a reactionary uh, move, kind of a CYA move by the FDA to kind of uh, temper some of the bad press that it's gotten uh, last year? 
Well, certainly, Sean, and again, another very important question. Certainly, um, stories like the implant files and documentaries like Bleeding Edge have a big impact on uh, our discussion and specifically why we're having this discussion today. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But again, I just want to remind you and your audience that problems like predicate creep and some of the other problems uh, surrounding the 510K have been known and have been discussed since the 510K was created 43 years ago. Uh, probably the most famous is um, uh, back in 2011 when the Institute of Medicine came out and basically said that uh, FDA should throw the entire 510K in the trash for largely the same reasons that people are talking about today. And I've said publicly many, many times, I strongly disagree with the IOM recommendation. I'm glad that obviously FDA did not throw the 510K in the trash. I think that would be a classic overreaction. But, you know, most importantly, Sean, is there's, there's, there's really nothing new here. Certainly implant files and bleeding edge are drawing it to people's attention, which is a good thing, because I think the solution to most problems is more communication, not less, and having a dialogue like you and I are having right now, and more importantly, like dialogues in the industry and at the FDA, you know, that's a good step in that direction. But um, you know, we really need to remember uh, the, the delicate balance that we walk between regulatory burden versus innovation. In other words, it's one thing to measure the number of people that are harmed or killed because they, uh, they use a medical device that in hindsight is not safe enough, whatever that means. But the other side of that equation is how do we measure how many people are harmed or killed because they don't have access to a medical device because we've raised the regulatory burden to the point that medical device companies, many of which people that are listening to our podcast right now work for, um, say, you know what, it's just not worth it and we're just not going to bring this device onto the market here in the U.S. So these are, these are challenging questions, no doubt. Right, right, absolutely. And uh, you, you stole a little bit of my thunder on my next question, which was with regard to whether or not we should keep the, uh, the 510K at all. So I think I know your answer to that, so I'm going to alter that question a little bit and just say if you were able to maybe, you know, for lack of a better word, start from scratch, what elements of the 510K would you preserve and maybe which elements would you significantly revise? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, and, and there is one thing that I would like to add in terms of uh, the question of, you know, should we keep the 510K? I want to also remind you and your audience something that uh, David Kessler, the former FDA commissioner, he was in fact commissioner of FDA for most of the, the decade of the 1990s, and he, and, and he was one of the folks that I worked with at that particular time. He said that the five, and I'm sorry, this is a quote, he said that the 510K pathway was meant as an exception, in essence, a loophole. Well, this is when it was originally created in 1976. That right. exception became the rule. The vast majority of medical devices today, in his words, regrettably, are regulated under this framework. So, uh, again, I think it's very interesting and somewhat ironic that when Congress originally created the 510K 43 years ago, it was indeed intended to be the exception, not the rule. Right. Four and a half decades later, it's in fact the opposite. It has become the rule, not the exception. So bottom line, you know, I've, I've been 
very clear, I'm not an advocate of getting rid of the 510K. That would be like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and that would, in fact, create other problems and probably bigger problems than what we have now. But it definitely needs to be fixed. And as I said a moment ago, having open and honest discussions is a good first step in that direction. Absolutely. And uh, one, one item that came up also in the JanFeb issue of MPO in a completely different column, and perhaps this works towards uh, at least helping to fix the issue, and that was with regard to a uh, column from Vicky Anastasi of ICON, who uh, contributed a column uh, that was focused around value-based healthcare. And her comment, uh, without quoting specifically, was as part of the column was essentially that uh, a PMA pathway for a device approval could be a better option for a company from a financial or reimbursement standpoint, due to the fact that in a value based healthcare, if you're showing equal or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, device equivalence, uh, you're not really differentiating yourself from a device that's already on the market, so you're also not going to get paid for that device any, any more than what the existing product is being reimbursed at. So there's a financial incentive to perhaps do a PMA uh, or take a PMA pathway. Is this a, is this a strategy you agree with? It is a strategy that I agree with, Sean. As a matter of fact, I've used this strategy a number of times over the years. I think what Vicki is describing in slightly different words is an example of what I call competitive regulatory strategy. That is, if you're working in the gray area between uh, class two and class three, and you can go either way, it would be tempting to go the path of least resistance to go a 510K. However, um, there are, as you alluded to, some very significant competitive advantages if instead you take the high road and go the PMA route in instead. But to be fair, Sean, it's not quite an apples-to-apples -apples comparison because the alternative to uh, the 510K, in other words, if a 510K for a particular medical device is not necessarily appropriate, uh, the alternative is not necessarily the PMA. If you can still show that it's a moderate or low-risk device, in other words, it's a class two or maybe even a class one device, then the alternative to the PMA is the de novo. But bottom line, both the PMA as well as the de novo do have very, very significant uh, advantages, including competitive advantages over the 510K. You know, a lot of people think that because the 510K is the most commonly used pathway to market here in the United States, uh, it's used that much because it's the, the, the best. And I've never made that assumption. Bottom line, there are advantages and disadvantages to all of the different pathways to market that we have. And it's incumbent on us as uh, medical device professionals, as regulatory professionals, and indeed everyone in the medical device industry to know what all of your different options are and the advantages and disadvantages, uh, not just the most common, not just the vanilla flavored, so that you can choose the most appropriate uh, in 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 your particular situation. So bottom line, Sean, to kind of start to wrap this up, I think, you know, in spite of all of the, the press going on today, both the positive press as well as the negative press, simply put, the 510K is a very useful tool uh, when it's used by people who know what they're doing uh, and when it's used properly. 
You know, but like any tool, if it's not used properly, if it's being used by people who, quite frankly, don't know what they're doing, then you can cause a heck of a lot of problems. Just like a scalpel, you know, a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon is a, a very, um, a very useful tool. A scalpel in the hands of of me or perhaps you, you know, not so much. And so the the question is, you know, do we need to create new regulation? like, for example, this 10-year predicate limitation that's being considered. Um, well, again, there's advantages and disadvantages to everything, but ironic as it might sound, Sean, as a regulatory con uh, uh, consultant and as a professional biomedical engineer, I'm not keen on creating new regulation to try to solve problems because oftentimes in the process of creating that new regulation to solve a problem, you create other problems, and sometimes those other right. problems are bigger than the problems that you, that you tried to solve. It's, a, it's an example of uh, the law of unintended consequences applied to medicine. And finally, the last thought that I would share, and then we can wrap this up, just as a reminder to our younger friends in our audience, uh, when I started out as an R&D engineer in the medical device industry uh, over 25 years ago, I guess I'm getting old, Sean, there was a heck of a lot less regulation than we have today. The design controls did not even exist. And yet somehow, I don't know how this happened, Sean, but somehow we were able to get reasonably safe and effective medical devices onto the market. Fast forward, you know, almost three decades later, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of regulation. The question is, are our medical devices really any better? Is the world a better place? It's a very interesting question. What do you think, Sean? Right. I, uh, well, uh, fortunately for, for my age, I, I, could, I cannot say that I was around three decades ago to, uh, <laughs> to see how, how the market was doing in terms of getting product to market. But I would, I would hope overall – uh, we are putting out safer products today, whether or not the mountain of documentation uh, that goes along with it is required or should be or, you know, that that is a debate for a different day. But I would say I would hope that we're, we're putting out reasonably. Now, they're also becoming more complex, so that is a, a caveat. But I would hope that we're reasonably putting out safer devices today. Fair enough, and thank you for very kindly reminding me that I am, in fact, getting old. <laughs> no, no offense intended, of course. Uh, so, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Mike, as always, for joining me on this episode of Mike on MedTech. And until we uh, hear from you, or until we're able to speak to you next time, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>